No, Paul is saying everything that Christ did in his life, his obedience, his death, his resurrection, the entirety of his ministry is covenantal. There couldn't be a, a, a bolder and broader way to put it than he did. And, and of course, let's not forget, this is coming straight out of the Old Testament. So Paul wants us to see this truth emerging out of the soil of the Old Testament. It's not something that has nothing to do with the Old Testament, but Paul says, look, see, it's been here in our Old Testaments all along. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Are you in the Orange County or Santa Ana area? We are exploring a church plant, Santa Ana Reformed, with the oversight and accountability of Oceanside URC and Reverend Danny Hyde. If you are interested or you know someone who might be interested in the area, please check out our show notes for a link to sign up for updates. Our Twitter or Instagram at guiltgracepod or Santa Ana URC for the same signup link, or simply email us at SantaAnnaReformed at gmail.com. We begin meetings on October 28th at 6.30 p.m. at 4th Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. Now on with the episode. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. We're on season three promises and fulfillments. We are walking through the Covenant Theology book published by Crossway and written by faculty at the Reformed Theological Seminary. And we have the pleasure of this episode having our first three-peat guest, Dr. Guy Prentice Waters. And he's going to be talking about his chapter, which is chapter 11, Covenant in Paul. And it's part of part one, Biblical Covenants inside this book. So we're going to reflect on that chapter. He's going to help walk us through it. But before we jump in, just like always, just a brief reminder about a few links on our show notes. If you go to our show notes, you'll find a link to Crossway. That's how you can purchase this book for yourself and follow along with us. You can also find a link for the Napark churches and other Reformed churches. It's a local church finder to find one near you that you can call home. You can also find a link for the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Those are all like-minded podcasts like us that you can listen to as well when you have time. And so without further ado, we're going to jump into Covenant in Paul by Dr. Waters. How are you, Dr. Waters? I am well, Peter and Nick. Thank you for having me back. And I'm honored to be the the secretariat of the guilt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what we're going to do is we'll, we'll send you the contract after the show yes. to be uh, the official third co-host and the honorarium and the, the designation of celebrity professor. So you're welcome. Excellent. I can't wait to see the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Peter, you had a just want to further introduce Dr. Waters, mm-hmm. a little bit of his background. Yeah, so if you guys haven't heard him on our show before, he was on Covenant Theology on season two, and he's also episode three, Covenant of Works in the New Testament. So now we're talking about Covenant in Paul, so Paul's letters, 
but he's a James M. Baird Jr. Professor of New Testaments and academic dean in Houston and Dallas. So he gets around a little bit. So he's in Mississippi, he's in Dallas, he's in Texas, but super excited to have him on, talk about one of his areas of expertise on Paul. And so maybe just a kind of baseline um, question before we get into Covenant and Paul, what what got you into Paul specifically (laughs) and covenant theology secondarily? Hmm. Well, when I was finishing up seminary at at Westminster in Philadelphia and moving into um, graduate work. At the time, the new perspective on Paul, which is not so new now, was new and shaping the discussion. And I I wanted to study uh, under scholars who were leading the discussion and, of course, Paul sits at the very heart of the New Testament uh, because in Paul you have some of the clearest testimony to justification, to the gospel, and really that began what what has been uh, just a a lifelong uh, privilege of sitting at the apostles' feet, learning from him, and covenant, of course, is something that runs through the whole Bible. We'll, we'll talk about this in, in a second, I'm sure. There, there's some people who are skeptical that Paul had much to do yeah. with covenant. Uh, I think Paul had a lot to say about covenant. And so what that means is that Paul is very much in the mainstream of the Bible for lots of reasons, not least being in, in God's providence, the one who would give some of the, the fullest Crispus expression to covenant theology in all of scripture. Hmm. Yeah, I know you, uh, one of your, your longest footnote on the first page on 228, I think it is, you talk about a lot of these people who've kind of shaped understanding of covenant with the new perspective or what we call quote unquote, the old perspective. So if people want to look into those footnotes to see who these people are, they can look at that footnote. 227, yeah, the first page. Oh, yeah, 227. It's 228 on my computer, no but it's worries. 227 on the on the actual physical page. Yes. You even said, too, that covenants to in Paul are the architectonic principle of Paul's thought. Yeah. Yeah, that's so if, right you, <laughs> yeah. If, if you think of, um, of a house that's being built and after the foundation is laid, the, the builders are going to set up a frame, and on that frame is, is going to hang everything else. And you might think of covenant and covenant theology as the frame of the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Mm-hmm. So, it, and like frames, you don't see them. A good house is going to conceal the frame, but without a frame, it, nothing is held up. <laughs> That's exactly the case in Paul. He only uses the word covenant or the word translated covenant about nine times. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have concluded from that, well, it's just not that important. Mm -hmm. But just because Paul didn't use the word that often doesn't mean that the idea wasn't important to him. And as we talk, I think we'll see that the the idea is very much in the mainstream of Paul's understanding of the structure of the Bible's teaching about Christ redemption, and beyond that, creation, redemption, and consummation. Yeah, it's like 
he might only mention it a couple times, uh, but it's in the water of everything he says. <clears throat> everything that Paul says is covenantal. Absolutely. And, and those passages that do use the word covenant, you know, they're, they're like mine shafts that take us down to the ore, mm. which is deep below. And so it, it, it can be deceptive if we say we're just going to look at the surface because you, you have to look at what's beneath the surface to appreciate everything that's going on. Hmm. Yeah. And kind of digging into that. So there's nine occurrences and you say over half of these occur in second Corinthians three and Galatians three to four, which I know you spend a, a bulk of your time in mm-hmm. this chapter on. So why do you know, maybe this is too broad of a question. Why, why those specific chapters within those books is covenant. So kind of hammered on in Paul. Well, great question. I, I think a couple of answers to that. One is that when Paul is writing his second letter to the Corinthians and Galatians, he is responding to teachers who have made their way into the church in Corinth and in Galatia, who are corrupting the gospel and who have profoundly misunderstood the law and why God gave the law and what God intends for the law for his people. And so that's Paul is on a course correction to clarify what the gospel is and what God was doing under the law in preparation for the appearance of Christ and his finished work. And when you look at those chapters specifically, I mean, 2 Corinthians 3 and Galatians 3 and 4, that's the Old Testament in three chapters. You know, Paul is telling you how to read the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, into the New Covenant in Galatians 3 and 4. And in 2 Corinthians 3, he's helping us to see the similarities and differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So we often forget that the New Testament teaches us how to read the Old Testament. Yeah. And that's exactly what Paul is doing, just, just like Jesus did throughout his ministry. That's exactly what Paul is doing as an apostle of Jesus. Mm. He's teaching us how to go back and read our Old Testaments in light of Jesus. Mm. And just as the previous covenants, uh, the new the new covenant is under the covenant of grace. Um, so how can you help us in the audience understand what, what Paul has to say about, you know, and I know this is the meat of everything. So, but just maybe as short as you want, but kind of going but one by one, we'll, we could walk through chronologically if you want from Adamic um, and you kind of skip over Noahic. We can maybe ask, clarification on that the abrahamic mosaic, mosaic especially there's a lot of misunderstanding on that and then davidic mm-hmm. how they all what paul has to say about all those and how they point to the new covenant right good and um good i hope we will go through and address each of those because paul does understand each of those administrations as covenants but before we do that it's important mm-hmm. to see he doesn't see them as covenants that have nothing to do with each other, just one succeeding the other, replacing the other, but having no connection among right. them. He sees each of those as administrations of a single 
overarching gracious covenant that God has made in Christ with sinners, beginning at the fall and coming to its fulfillment in the person and work of Christ under the new covenant. So I think that's important just to pause and reflect on that what we're looking at here are not pickup sticks that have nothing to do with each other, but we're looking at a, a single covenant. It's outworking in history. It starts very small and it blossoms to fulfillment um, in, in Jesus Christ. So we're looking at something that is both progressive, but also organic. And within that unity, there's diversity. Each of these covenants has its own character and its own purpose in the broader economy of, of God's redemption. And I think the place where we really see that coming out is in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. I think we talked about those verses in an earlier podcast. Yep, yep. And that's where Paul is setting Adam and Christ alongside one another as, as covenant heads. And what Paul is teaching us is that you're either in Adam, and if you're in Adam, then his one sin is counted to you, and you own that sin, and you were guilty of that sin, and you are therefore justly sentenced to death for that reason. In the gospel, we are transferred from union with Adam to union with Christ, and his righteousness is counted to the sinner such that we are justified, we're counted righteous in Christ, not because of anything we've done, but only because of his merits counted to us, received through faith alone. And the result is life and glory and blessing and peace, all of the, the blessed fruits Paul describes in those verses. So what Paul is saying is that from the, the fall of Adam into sin, there's only one way and there's only one mediator by whom God has been saving sinners in all of redemptive history, Christ. And so that means that going back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, first announcement of the gospel, from that point on, it's all about the work of Jesus Christ. And every sinner that God was pleased to save from that point on was saved by the work of Jesus Christ. So, Paul is setting then side by side two representatives, covenant heads, mediators, and that gives us the broad framework of uh, biblical theology. And that gives us an entree into the various small c covenants, the covenantal administrations of this one gracious covenant that God has made in Christ to save sinners throughout history. Mm. Yeah, and you say, I like how you say it too, uh, two Adams, two covenants. It's like mm -hmm. you have Adam and then the final Adam, Christ, and then two covenants, covenant of works, mm -hmm. you're in Adam, or the covenant of grace, you're in Christ. And Jesus was under the covenant of works and he fulfilled it, he obeyed it and did it perfectly. So we're we achieve the covenant of works through Jesus in the covenant of grace, right? Exactly. So 
there's a sense in which every Christian can say, I have completely fulfilled every obligation that God has set before me. Not that I have done it in and of myself, but my covenant head, Jesus Christ, has done it on my behalf. He has fulfilled the law and he has assumed, he took upon himself the penalty that I deserve for my sin, not just in Adam, but all my personal sins, so that he has met and fulfilled, he has satisfied every obligation covenantally that lies upon me as, as a human being. So that's, that's critical to understanding our salvation. It's critical to living the Christian life with assurance and with joy and with confidence and to have hope uh, before us, not despair. And, and it's critical to reading our Bibles the way God wants us to read them. So you you start with with Abraham and you talk about the seed and the um, so the Greek word for seed and um, so what how does how is Paul treating Abraham especially in Romans four kind of against and in Galatians three against some of the critics on what Abraham might be used in Paul? Yeah, so we we have in Romans and particularly in Galatians what has been, we have to engage in what's been called mirror reading. So we, we don't have the letter of the Judaizers to the Galatians. We've got to read between the lines from what Paul says about their teaching. And we can be completely confident that what he says about their teaching is, is a true statement of what they taught. So they taught something like this, that God came to Abraham, made a covenant with him, and uh, told him, you need to be circumcised. And Abraham was circumcised, and Abraham walked faithfully before God. And what the Judaizers were saying to Christians in the first century, say in Galatia, look, if you want the blessing of Abraham, you've got to be circumcised like Abraham. Sure, you have to believe, but you have to be faithful. You have to be circumcised. There are things you need to do in order to get the blessing that Abraham got. And what Paul does, he never grants that misinterpretation, he says, of Abraham. What he, he does close readings of the text of scripture. And he goes back and looks at Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. And he says, look, God made these promises to Abraham before circumcision, before he did anything, they were freely given. And Abraham received them by faith. And that faith was not Abraham being faithful and God rewarding that. That was the outstretched hand taking on what God had on offer, these gracious promises. And yes, Uh, obedience followed, and it had to follow that faith, but he was not counted righteous because of that obedience uh, at all. And circumcision uh, was not something that Abraham did to get a blessing. It was a sign, a covenant sign that God made to confirm the blessing and to help Abraham grow in faith to be assured of that blessing. So, he says the whole 
arrangement was by grace. What God gave Abraham, he received through faith. And the thing that Paul really brings out, especially in Galatians 3, is that what was promised to Abraham was not merely a chunk of soil in Palestine. He was holding out Jesus Christ mm. and all the life and blessing that comes uh, th through faith in Jesus Christ. So Abraham trusted in the same Savior that we do. And that's why he says in Romans 4, if you have the faith of Abraham, you are the offspring of Abraham. And that's why a Jew, as well as a Gentile, can equally be the son of Abraham or daughter of Abraham by putting faith in what Abraham believed, the, the <clears throat> promise of God, the, the Messiah that was held out to Abraham in the promise. So real, real quick, if we, if we connect the Adamic to Abraham, can we go back to Genesis 3.15, talking about Jesus is the seed of the woman that's going to crush the, right. the, the serpent. Um, we connect that to the Abrahamic, and Abrahamic's a lot, of, a lot of language of offspring. So that offspring, in a singular way, is pointing towards Christ, and but in a plural way, pointing towards the church, which is us. Yes. Yeah, can you yeah. describe that a little bit for those who've probably never heard of this before? Absolutely. So um, what, what Nick was, was drawing out was a really important word that, that Paul highlights when he's opening up the teaching of the Old Testament about Abraham. It comes in Galatians 3. It's the word that's translated seed or sperma. Of course, that, that crosses over into English. Offspring is the way it's translated. Yeah. So that is the word, of course, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that appears in Genesis 3.15 and in other places as the, the promised one by whom God would redeem sinners from among the nations. So in the first place, that Paul emphasizes that word sperma or offspring helps us to see that he is connecting what, what God was doing under Abraham all the way back with Genesis 3.15 with Adam. So this, this is just in Genesis 12, 15, 17, this is just the outworking of what God had first promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. And then, as, as you also point out, Paul is going to talk about seed in both its singular sense and its plurality. So it, it can refer to an individual. It can refer to many people who are uh, under and in that individual. Uh, the, the technical term, it's a collective singular. And what Paul does is he helps us to see that, yes, these promises were about Christ, that promised offspring, but those promises were given to those who were in Christ, the offspring, and, and that's where the plurality comes in, that the uh, many descendants of Abraham, the spiritual descendants of Abraham, all those who were looking by faith to God's promise, they are trusting in Christ, the one seed. And so they benefit from what 
he was going to accomplish in his life, death, and resurrection. And so that's where Paul helps us to see the, the one and the many, Christ as the covenant head and the many as those who are united to Christ and who benefit from what Christ has done for us. He is the one seed, the sperma, and, and we are the seeds, plural, who are caught up in Christ and receive from him what he has accomplished for us. Hmm. And I know for the kind of going back, but this also relates to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant, obviously under the covenant of grace. But I know the old perspective, new perspective on Paul can hinge on Abraham with mm -hmm. your in with baptism. And there's some other, like there's other things you have to follow. So can you describe for the audience what the old perspective, quote unquote, old perspective and new perspective, how they differ on Abraham and the covenants with baptism or with covenantal um, inclusion. So just if you can describe those two schools, I know people hear this sometimes and they're not really sure how does this really affect me or my understanding of justification? Absolutely. So Paul is certainly emphasizing when he talks about Genesis that what Abraham did it wasn't just for the Jew, uh, it, it pertained to the Gentile as well. So that if you are uh, putting faith in God and in, in his promise um, in, in Christ, then you are in, in every way a true son of Abraham. It, in other words, the, the children of Abraham are not just Jews with Abraham's DNA in their body. Mm -hmm. and, and that's all true. But the problem comes that the, some new perspective interpreters are going to say, well, then the difference between Paul and his opponents is that they were exclusive. You got to become a Jew if you're going to be part of God's people, circumcised and keeping kosher and all of that. Whereas they say, no, Paul is inclusive. So all you need to be recognized as a member of God's people is faith. So the issue, they say, is really, how do you know who is a true member of God's people? And is it going to be exclusive or inclusive? Now, <clears throat> there's, a, there's certainly a, a, a grain of truth to that insofar as Paul expounds the, the passages about Abraham, but that's not what Paul is saying that justification is. And that's the real problem. Justification is not about who's in and who's out. Justification is about the salvation of the sinner. It's about a sinner being counted right before God, moving from condemnation to justification or being counted righteous. So when Paul is talking about the inclusivity of the gospel, meaning you're not excluded because you're not a Jew, he, he's saying that all kinds of people can, by faith, be forgiven of their sins, can be accepted as righteous in Christ. That is, they can be justified. So justification and the Abrahamic covenant is, is not at the end of the day in the first place about who's in and who's out. It's about God saving sinners in Christ. 
that goes back to <clears throat> he had faith before he got circumcised. I mean, yeah, to have faith to leave his father's house and go where God told him to. And this was before he was circumcised. Exactly. And, and as Paul says right at the beginning of Romans 4, he's, he's clear in 4.4 4 and 4.5, look, Abraham was not justified by works. He was justified by faith. And then he tells you, now by works, I mean somebody who keeps the law in such a way as to receive a wage or a reward. And faith is the diametric opposite of that kind of working. So Paul isn't thinking in the categories of inclusion, exclusion, when he's talking about justification. He's thinking about doing or receiving as the way a sinner comes into possession of righteousness. And his point is Abraham, like us, was counted righteous, not because of anything that he did, past, present, or future, but only because of what Christ did, which was counted to him, imputed to him, and received through faith alone. Maybe and a good way to think that we are descendants of Abraham through the spirit. It really, faith is that DNA that connects us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And Paul is really unflinching on that point that Gentiles are the sons of Abraham. I mean, he doesn't say, well, we're kind of like the sons of Abraham or honorary sons of yeah. we are sons of Abraham. And he's unapologetic about that because sonship was always reckoned through faith, ultimately, not through biology. Yeah. So you move from Abrahamic to Mosaic, and there's, there's obviously a lot of debate with Paul and the Mosaic, but you say it kind of hinges on two or three chapters in 2 Corinthians and Galatians. So what, how is Mosaic been understood by scholars or by other people, but how is like, how is Paul understanding the Mosaic covenant as it relates to the covenant of grace? Right. Um, great question. And, you know, we, we'd have to have 12 podcasts <laughs> yeah. to sketch the field here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the important thing to remember is that in these, these three chapters, 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, and Galatians 3 and 4, Paul isn't setting out to speak about the Mosaic Covenant in the abstract. He's not setting out to say everything that could be said about the Mosaic Covenant. He's speaking in to a specific pastoral issue that's come up in the church. And the issue is you have teachers who have misinterpreted the Mosaic Law, who have tried to turn the law into something that God never designed it to be. And so what Paul is trying to do is to show the true purpose of the law. He's also trying to show the Galatians and the Corinthians, look, if, if you try and follow these teachers, they're going to lead you to a bad place because that misinterpretation of the law is spiritually fatal and it leads to a dead end. So that, that's why Paul is so insistent and ardent and passionate in the way he teaches about the law in these chapters. So, so with that basic introduction, Paul wants to say in the first place, look, God never gave the law 
to Israel or anyone else as a, as a way for the sinner to be justified. In other words, he, he never handed the law and say, here, if you do this, then I will make you right before me. Uh, that was simply not what God intended by his law. In fact, Paul says, it's just the opposite. The law was intended to reveal sin, to define sin, to show sin. You know, James speaks of sin, of the law as a mirror, showing us our sin. That's, that's true to what Paul teaches about the law. And <clears throat> if you, you try to keep the law as a sinner, you will find that your sinful response to the law prompts you to sin more. So in that sense, the law becomes something that sin grabs hold of to sin more. And that's counterintuitive, but Paul teaches us that's exactly the way the, the fallen mind works. But he says that's not the only thing the law does. It exposes, but it also points to Christ. And he stresses that the law is a shadow of Christ. And so the law was showing and leading Israel to Jesus Christ through the sacrifices, through the whole ceremonial system of the Old Testament, uh, primarily. It was intended to bring Israel to the place where seeing Christ on display, they would put their trust as sinners in the Messiah to come. So, so Paul says the law was always intended not to drive people from Christ, but to bring people closer to Christ. And, and that's part of the reason he speaks of the law in Galatians 3 as a, a pedagogue or a disciplinarian. Yeah, that was my very next question. Good. <laughs> to, to lead, you know, a disciplinarian um, is not the teacher though the law does teach, but the disciplinarian in Paul's day was someone that a father would hire to make sure that his son went to school, you know, didn't skip off to the arcade or whatever, <laughs> that he did his homework assignment. And the, the pedagogue was authorized to use physical discipline to make sure that young person did what he was supposed to do. And that's what Paul likens the law to. It was a regimen for a young people, Israel. And he, he says as much in Galatians 4, Israel were sons, but they were sons who were underage. They were heirs, but they had yet to come into possession of their inheritance because they were too young. And so what the law did is it guided and governed and steered them and disciplined them to bring them to the place of maturity and the full enjoyment of their inheritance upon maturity. And that, that Paul says is where the church is today. Mm. For one people, Israel is the church under age and the church is the church come to maturity. And, and what the, and that's why Paul says, look, that's why we don't live under the regimen of the law now no more than a 30-year-old lives like a seven-year-old 
under his mom and dad, because that's not appropriate to a 30 year old. It's great when you're seven. It's not great when you're 30. Yeah. And that's why Paul says the law was great for its time. And he's speaking about the whole system, the whole economy of the Mosaic laws. But he says, look, you Galatians, you, you can't go back to it. That would be foolish uh, because you're all grown up in Christ. You call that the, the guardian, right? The guardians. And we, we call anybody that's 30 living in their mom's house still uh, Peter Panning these days. <laughs> i thought you were gonna start with start with peter and i was like ah okay no not, not peter belling peter panning <laughs> yeah. different peter. but yeah something too that's cool to connect abrahamic to mosaic is he did say it's complementary to connect abrahamic to mosaic and then paul calls mosaic the old covenant which is helpful to kind of grasp and the law right that's right so yeah, we, we want to be careful that the, Paul is very clear that the Mosaic Covenant is not plan B. This is not God saying, oops, Abraham didn't work. Let me try something different. And then the new covenant is plan C. Whoops, mm-hmm. that really didn't work. Let me try something else. Paul is clear in Galatians that God added the law to the Mosaic, to the Abrahamic Covenant for a specific reason. So it was never intended to be permanent. It had a beginning, had an end, and it had certain complementary purposes. So stepping back, we we can see what those are. The Abrahamic covenant introduced Christ through the promise. The Mosaic covenant is a fuller revelation of Christ through the promise. So there's there's a line of complementarity. And the Mosaic Covenant, by exposing sin, defining sin, and driving to Christ, serves what both covenants are doing, revealing Christ, by leading, in this case, Israel, out of a sense of sin, out of a need need for Christ, closer to Jesus Christ. And, And then Paul says, the, the coup de grace is when Christ actually comes, then you don't need that whole apparatus of uh, leading to Christ mm-hmm. because he's here. That doesn't mean the law goes away. The law is transformed. It continues to reveal sin, as Paul says in Romans 7, you know, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death. Thanks be to God. And he gives praise for Christ. So it it does continue to show us our sin. But now that Christ has come, the law in that old sense doesn't shape the lives of God's people as it once did. It it has been transformed under the new covenant. So they, people that were under the Mosaic covenant at the time had the same faith we do today. However, because of the age that they were in and subject to being under the Mosaic covenant, how were they to act as believers based on their kind of obedience and response to that age of being in the Mosaic covenant, which we don't really do today because Jesus fulfilled it. So I'd I'd go back just to what you said at the beginning, Nick, and that's probably the most important thing. 
is that the Israelite, the believer in Israel, was trusting in Jesus Christ, just like you and I are today. Same Savior, same salvation. The, the difference is they were looking at Christ in the shadows. We see Christ in the noonday sun because he has come. So they're looking at Christ and we're looking at Christ, but from two different vantage points. But we're saved by the same Christ and we're saved in the same way through faith. The law also, in each case, is the way that faith expresses its truth, its genuineness, its thankfulness to God. We, we obey God willingly uh, and as our duty. That was true of the Israelite. That's true of the Christian. Not to justify ourselves, but as those who have already been justified. So Christ has fulfilled the law on our behalf. We take up the law not to get right with God, but to live out as those who have been made right with God. And that's the way God would have us to do. So the, the difference is, Paul says that the law for the Israelite was a regimen suited to a child. And <clears throat> no Israelite living at the time, I think, would have said, this is a, a, a burden that I cannot bear. Hmm. Look at Psalm 119 and hmm. the, the delight and joy in the law. Yeah. So why then can Paul speak of the law that way? If Psalm 119 says yeah, the, the law is perfect liberty. Well, they're not contradictory. Again, it's a difference in perspective. Going back to our analogy, think of the seven-year-old. A seven-year-old loves living at home with his mom and dad, doesn't think that it's burdensome to, to be told what to do every minute of the day. But the 30-year-old would look back on that if, if he's mature <laughs> yeah. and say, there's no way I'd want to do that. I'm, I'm grown up. I mean, that was fine for them, yeah. but, but not for now. And I think that's the difference in perspective. We're not living under that regimen and that whole regimen has ended. We're living in Christ under the 10 commandments, but all of the ceremonial and the civil laws that were, were designed to point to Christ those have fulfilled their purpose. So that, that I think is going to help capture some of the differences between the Israelite and the Christian. Yeah. And you, you cover, which I don't think I've seen covered in all that much of Paul before uh, and about a page and a half on David. So the, the last kind of consummate old Testament covenant that kind of puts everything else together. And you talk about two specific verses, second Timothy two, and Romans one. So why why is the covenant with David they, the the Davidic covenant? Why why is that and how is that used by Paul and what does it refer back to as well? Because I know you you say it kind of connects with other covenants as well. Right. Good, great question. So we know from the Old Testament that what God did with David in Second Samuel seven is a covenant. Psalm eighty nine, for instance. Now. How do we know that Paul viewed that as a covenant? Well, I think for one thing, 
if you look at 2 Timothy 2, 8, he calls Jesus Christ the offspring of David, the sperma of David. Same word that is used in the Greek translation of Genesis 3.15, same word that he uses about Abraham. You see the line that he's drawing from Genesis 3 to Genesis 12 to 2 Samuel 7, straight to Jesus Christ. You know, there is the, the thread that runs through the whole of the Bible in, in that one word. So what's, what's going on then? Well, if, if you look back at the Davidic covenant, what is God promising? Well, he's, he's promising a couple of things that really sit at the heart of what the New Testament says about the person and work of Christ. One is sonship that he is the son of God. And think about how important in Jesus' own teaching and in Paul's own teaching about Jesus, it is that he is the son of God and how tied that is into his saving work for us. And then think about all of the times that Paul says to believers that in Christ, you are sons of God. Whether you're a boy or a girl, a man or a woman, you're a son of God. Why does he say that? Because in Christ, you have the privileges that belong to Jesus Christ as the Son of God, who was faithful as God's Messiah. And, and then with that, of course, you have the promise that he will reign. That is, he is on his throne. He takes his throne, completing his work of obedience and death and resurrection, and he is now reigning over all things for the sake of the church. And think about all the ways that Paul applies that for comfort, for encouragement, for exhortation to the church, that Jesus Christ is on his throne. And remember, what Adam did when he sinned is that he effectively, um, through the world, under a curse, and under the dominion of Satan. And in Christ, the last Adam, we see the second man placed in dominion over the creation. You know, the world is set to rights in Jesus Christ, and creation has come to the fulfillment of its God-given purpose in Christ. And we reign in and with him, and we live under the blessing of the reign of Christ, the Son of God. So Davidic covenant doesn't come up often, again, on the surface, but follow that mind shaft, and there's rich ore under the surface that really runs, these veins run all through the teaching of Paul's letters. Yeah, yeah you're, you're saying 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, and then Romans 1, verses 3 and 4. That's right. Yeah, and then it's also you were just explaining how it's a good extension of the Abrahamic covenant. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, because what the Davidic covenant helps us to see in light of Christ is the pathway, the avenue that Christ was going to pursue to win blessing and give blessing to the nations, that it would be as the obedient messianic son of God, the, the suffering son of God, who entered into his reign 
by the pathway of obedience and the cross, this is the way that blessing comes to the Gentiles, such that in Christ, we are obedient and that our sins have been paid for once and for all by his blood. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, and just to, go ahead, Peter. Oh, I was just going to say, and to kind of, kind of take that next step, what does Paul have to say about the new covenant? Because I know he doesn't verbatimly say new covenant. <laughs> I was, was going to read that same one. Yeah, because yeah, you, you work a lot on Romans 11, which is not yeah. the expected, ver- or expected chapter I think a lot of people think of. Because that's, generally right. speaking, it's kind of a dispensationalist stronghold mm-hmm. when you go from like Romans 10 to 11. And so, yeah, what, like, what, what is Paul doing with Romans 11? Yeah, no, great, great question. And the, the phrase new covenant comes up a couple of times when Paul is clearly quoting Jeremiah chapter 31. Mm-hmm. And that is important um, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 3. But it would be a mistake just to dismiss that as Oh, well, of course, Paul uses that phrase because he's quoting the chapter, so it doesn't mean much to him. Well, it does mean much to him. I think it's clear from those passages. We, we could explore that to see. But Romans 11, I think, does a wonderful job at showing exactly how that's the case. If you look at Romans 11, Paul is quoting Isaiah, verses 26 and 27, and he, he closes this portion of the quotation this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And what Paul is doing is he is thinking about the ministry of Christ holistically from the perspective of his return. And what he does is he puts the label covenant on the entirety of Christ's ministry from the perspective of his return. So what that passage does is it shows us that everything that Christ did to save sinners, to redeem us from our sin, is under the banner of covenant before God. And if, if we ask, well, Paul, how is this the case, or what does that look like? Well, that's where these new covenant passages come in. Everything Jeremiah was talking about is precisely what came to fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. So it, it's not as though we could say, Well, there are two or three things in Jeremiah that are covenantal, and then, well, the rest of what Christ did was something else. No, Paul is saying everything that Christ did in his life, his obedience, his death, his resurrection, the entirety of his ministry is covenantal. There couldn't be a a bolder and broader way to put it than he did. And, And of course, let's not forget This is coming straight out of the Old Testament. So Paul wants us to see this truth emerging out of the soil of the Old Testament. It's not something that has nothing to do with the Old Testament, but Paul says, look, see, it's been here in our Old Testaments all along. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, How can you help us Christians and remind us how our two sacraments relate to the new covenant? And, and how Paul describes it. And so baptism and communion. Yes. Well, one way to think about that, Nick, is to contrast the corresponding sacraments prior to the new covenant. You have circumcision and you have Passover. 
And in Colossians 2, Paul is going to compare baptism with circumcision. And of course, 1 Corinthians 11, you've got the connection between Passover and the Lord's Supper and other passages as well. The first difference that hits us right out of the gate is that circumcision and Passover are bloody ordinances. You have to shed blood to observe them. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are bloodless ordinances. There is no shedding of blood. And that's a way of saying God is done with the shedding of blood when Jesus Christ died on the cross. And so we are not looking forward to a sacrifice to be made. We are looking back to a once for all finished sacrifice. And baptism is going to point to many things in Paul's teaching, but it points especially in, in Romans 6 and many things downstream of this to our union with Jesus Christ. We're baptized into his death and his resurrection. And the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, is going as well to point to our union with Christ, but especially our communion with him in his death for sin. And with that, our fellowship with one another. So what these two sacraments do, and this is important, they are, we shouldn't look at them as things we do to show our devotion to God in the first place. They are things we do, and we should be in devotion to God when we do them. The purpose of a sacrament is not us coming to God, it's God coming to us and reminding us of what he has done in Christ. And this is to help us to, to grow in faith and to grow strong in faith and to walk in faith and its fruit obedience, because we need all the reminders of Christ that we can get. And so what, what God does in these two sacraments is to give us through the five senses a representation of Christ and his work mm. so that through faith we can draw near to him commune with him and walk with him yeah I love it and added to that kind of as we as we conclude this you you after talking about the the Lord's Supper in First Corinthians ten eleven and Exodus twenty four and a couple of these uh, of these texts, you talk right before your conclusion about adoption and the Spirit's work for believers today, and then what it would have meant to Old Covenant believers. So what? How? How is it similar to us and the Old co Old Covenant believers, but better for us? Yes, in a different way. Right, and and again, great question. Coming back. To first things, you know, when we're talking about new covenant and old covenant, we're, we're not talking about apples and oranges. We're talking about two administrations. The, these were covenants that administered Christ to sinners for redemption. But there are differences and, and they're relative differences. So what would those look like? Well, two lines, really. One, we've already talked about that the old covenant shadowed Christ and his work to come. The new covenant is going to present Christ 
having come and having completed his work. A second difference, and this gets Peter into, into what you were directly asking, concerns the ministry of the Spirit. Paul is clear that the Spirit was certainly active in the period of the Old Testament, and, and he was active in the lives of Israelites to minister Christ to them. But under the new covenant, the new covenant is preeminently the administration of the spirit because the risen and exalted Christ has poured out the Holy Spirit in fullness upon his people, not just a people that is primarily drawn from the Jews, but a people from all nations. And we have the privilege of experiencing this fullness of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Paul talks about it, particularly in Romans chapter 8, the uh, ways in which the, the indwelling spirit uh, ministers in and to the lives of believers. So we're not saying that the spirit wasn't at work and wasn't at work savingly in the lives of God's people under the old covenant, but as with Christ, they had a, a shadowy understanding of who he was and what he was doing. We have a much fuller understanding of who the Spirit is and what he's doing, and that's tied directly to our fuller understanding of Christ and what he's doing. Hmm. Is it correct to say that we're, our current age is called the church age? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then... Uh, what moment in history did the new covenant take place and start and be implemented? Yes. Yeah, I think we can say this is the church age so long as we're clear that Israel and the church are one people mm-hmm. and the New Testament re- typically reserves the word church for the new covenant people of God to to reflect that that we are a people drawn from the nations, the the called out ones, the assembly that that God has gathered from all all the nations. And then the the other thing to stress is that um, uh, under the new covenant, um, when did this begin? Well, remember the new covenant is the capstone of this one covenant of grace. So we're experiencing in kind exactly what God's people have always experienced, but the new covenant means we experience it more richly, more fully, and in light of the finished work of Christ. So where is the the bright line in the history of redemption that marks here is the beginning of the new covenant. I think the answer of the New Testament to that is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That's what Paul constantly goes back to as the the point in history when the new covenant began and the old covenant ended. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure you say it like this, but you say something close to the effect of New, not that it wasn't known in the old, but new is it's fuller now. That, that's right. So 
you know, we're always on a tightrope here and we don't want to fall off the one side where we sever the new from the old. Yeah. We don't want to fall over the other side where we act as though there are no differences at all between new and old. So we, we're always having to keep those in balance. Yeah. So all three of us and all professing Christians out there are part of the new covenant people. Um, what, what is your message for somebody that is listening right now and wants to be in the new covenant? What do they need to do? Well, I think the first thing is to step back and appreciate what the Bible teaches, not just about people today, but people since Adam, that in Adam, we're sinners and we are justly condemned before God. And we have nothing in ourselves or at our disposal to rescue us out of that condition. And the good news of the Bible, and this is the good news that runs throughout the Bible, is that there is a deliverer. His name is Jesus Christ. The blessing of the new covenant is that we know that he has come and by his life, death, and resurrection has done everything that the sinner needs to be delivered from the guilt and the bondage of sin and ultimately the presence of sin and to enjoy in part now in fullness later, the eternal life uh, that is the, the provision and portion of every person who puts trust in Christ, in God. So how do you get into the new covenant the, the first step is to see that it is Christ who has brought the new covenant into history by his life, death, and resurrection, and that he freely invites sinners to come to him. We acknowledge our sin. We know that he is sufficient to save, that he only can save us, and that if we trust in him, even that trust is the work of his grace in our lives. We, we at no point do anything that earns anything or wins anything from God. The work is all of God in Christ. And that, that's a freeing thing to a sinner. But I think we also recognize as glorious as that news is, we need to remember there, there is no life outside of Christ. There's only death. And so there is no way into the new covenant but by faith in Christ. There is a way, but there is one way. And we, we're grateful that there is one way yep. and that that one way has been entirely prepared for us by what Christ has already done and been accepted by the Father. Love it. Yeah. I don't know if there's anything that you feel like we missed or that you want to kind of pull into Paul and covenant theology, anything that that you want to end up with, or we'll just we'll wrap it up right here. No, only that, um, you know, Paul says to the Corinthians, I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, I want you to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Paul never goes off message, mm-hmm. cross and resurrection. Covenant theology is not some hobby that Paul pursued to the side 
Covenant theology was the way that Paul brought the gospel to expression in the whole of scripture. And I'm not saying if you disagree with covenant theology or you don't quite get covenant theology, then you don't grasp the gospel. But if you really want to lay hold of the gospel in a way that's, that's going to be strong and is, is going to encourage you in, in a, a faithful walk before God, then Paul says the way you get there is by understanding this glorious covenantal unity and diversity, and it all converges on Christ. And that's the most important thing. It all converges on Christ. Yeah. So a little, <laughs> little tongue in cheek, yeah. but I always, I always end this. So what you're saying is Paul was a covenantal Presbyterian. <laughs> I, I'm partial, but I would have to agree. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, one last question for me. It's more of a reminder for the audience. If you guys want to read Paul in the Bible, can you remind us where in the Bible, what books in the Bible would be written by Paul? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So Paul wrote 13 letters mm -hmm. and they are grouped in our New Testaments, beginning with Romans, which is about the longest, all the way down to Philemon which is the shortest. And sometimes Paul wrote multiple letters to congregations, two letters to the church in Corinth, two letters to the church in Thessalonica, and those are together. And Paul is a pastor writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he's speaking to believers in the first century, and he's speaking to us today. So his words mean as much to us as they did back then. And <clears throat> I would say if you have never opened Paul before, or you're, you've only started to begin to read Paul, then a, a letter like Romans or Galatians will help you to get more into the kinds of issues that we have talked about here. They're wonderful study aids that are out there. And I'm sure you have resources that are available uh, to your listeners that you mm -hmm. recommend, uh, good study Bibles, good commentaries. Um, these, uh, as Peter says, there are some things in Paul that are difficult to understand. That's true. Not this Peter. The, the I was going to say Peter. Peter. <laughs> Although this, Peter. this Peter definitely says that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but some things. So he's, he's not impossible to read, but like anything that's worthwhile in life, it, it takes hard work and perseverance. But if you put that hard work and perseverance, use the helps, um, then I think you'll, you'll find the profit. Mm. Thank you so much. I love it. I yeah. Hope. We, we almost hit a, a Clark episode limit. Yeah. So. <laughs> we could, well, I'm honored. Yeah. We could, we could, uh, we can call these Clark and down just like, uh, I think Presby cast calls it half Rogans or Rogans. The long ones, the long yeah. ones. To I love it. Yeah. Hopefully people got a lot out of it. Thank you for Dr. Waters for coming on and, and uh, talking about Paul again, covenant theology again. So we're going to, we're going to have to have you on a whole lot more often now. Oh, would love it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology 
for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world. And how to best do that is rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, and you, after you rate a review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all in once, retweeting us on Twitter, liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms, because that actually puts in front of people's physical face this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing. And uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. The yeah. And you guys can find that link on anchor our official anchor website if you just go on um, our social media links it'll it'll link you to that website it's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes if you're on this podcast a specific episode scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this or three different options of donating so we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap pay for shipping get nicer stuff all for the focus of spreading the gospel further Yep. All for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time.